Great Patient One Chapter 28 Read by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott After a week's sojourn in the Kathmandu Valley, Nick and Achan planned one last walk into the Himalayan mountains to spend some quiet time at the borders of Tibet before travelling home. Attached to this chapter is the final map showing their route. Chapter 28 Up, Down, Over and Out I could feel the precious week we had set aside for a quiet time in the mountains getting nibbled away. But there was nothing else to do but to go with it. All the bhikkhus we had met in the Kathmandu Valley were coming together for a dana at Sangaram on our day of departure. It was their way of saying goodbye. So that meant missing the early morning bus out of Kathmandu, and therefore not getting to the mountains until the next day. But what else can you do? So it wasn't until the afternoon that we were finally heading for those immaculate mountains. We could see them more clearly as we rose out of the haze of the valley, but the buses had to work hard even to get close. Progress was accompanied by their panting and screeching. The roads were like corkscrews. A hard beginning, like we never get there. The first night, April 16th, we stopped in Trizuli Bazaar. There was a vihara and a Theravadan enclave full of Sakyas and Bhadracharyas beaming to see us. So that meant staying for the meal. They were good people. It was the least we could do. So it wasn't until the evening of the 17th that we got to Dunje, the entrance to Langtang National Park, which is centred around the Langtang Valley as it snakes north and then east, parallel to the Tibetan border. Dunje is a trekker's village. The buses come and go every day, disgorging Westerners with their huge fluorescent packs, who tower over the sun-crinkled old Nepali women and barefoot porters. It's the porters who carry the packs of the larger expeditions in the traditional wicker baskets that extend way over their heads. They go with the serious mountaineers who have all the gear, cooking equipment, tents, ice picks and crampons for the ridges and glaciers. The second division of trekkers were carrying their own packs, with sleeping bags and cameras adequate for the trails and accommodation in the many lodges. Nick and I were off the bottom end of the scale. We were nearly flat broke for a start, and it wasn't certain whether there'd be enough money to feed us. Rather than boots, we had decrepit sandals. Instead of snug-fitting high-tech packs, we had a couple of cloth bags. I'd been re-stitching and adding tags and loops to mine and strengthening the places that took the strain, but it was still basically a shoulder bag. Nick's hold-all 
would have been the laughing stock of any trekker's lodge. The main zip had given up, so we pinned its broken mouth more or less shut with huge safety pins. The dog collars riveted to the main body of the bag that held his sleeping mat were coming away, as were the leather handles that he had put his arms through to pull the thing onto his back. We used to wind an old belt around the whole arrangement to hold it into some cohesive shape. Not that we had that much to carry. To make things easy, we'd left all but our most fundamental requisites at Sangaram. For me, that meant carrying just my bowl, mug and blanket, razor, toothbrush and sewing kit, the much-battered yoga mat that Katie had offered in Bodhagaya, the sleeping bag that Bhikkhu Maitri had loaned me, and a quilted vest, the little red diary, a few Buddha medallions from Nalandar to give away, and only one Buddha Rupa, Mahakanti, of course. But still, it was hard going. We were sleeping out. The lodges, even if we could have afforded them, were not the right places for a monk. And getting up stiff and cold. Then we'd start winding up and down the trail for a few hours, with the sun getting fiercer and hot blood and breath pumping like a bellows. Occasionally there'd be a stop for water, or for yak butter tea, a few times a day. The lodges came up every few hours. Blue Star, Lama Hotel, Everest View. We'd stop in one of those for our meal, with Nick scanning the menu to see what he could afford. The food was Western style and therefore much more expensive than the rice and dal he'd budgeted for. But we brought sampa, roasted barley flour, with us, and we could mix it with free hot water to fill up some of the inner spaces that the trail opened up. We figured that we'd eat on the way up when we really needed it, get by on a tuna fish sandwich backed up by a mug of sampa. Perhaps we'd have to fast while inactive at the gompa, and going down would be easier. We could do it without food if need be. The proprietors of the lodges were of Tibetan stock and recognised me as some kind of bhikkhu or lama. One of the men gave Nick some sugar. The women would often stand back looking at us and pondering. There was an offer of a free night's lodging that we turned down. Or one would show us a small shrine with a candle and an ageing photo of some lama, or maybe it was a lost relative. My medallions dwindled and the little photo of Ajahn Chah that a bhikkhu sent me in Varanasi found its last resting place. After the tiny settlement of Sayabru, the valley narrows and turns east. There's a long steep hill there, and a section of the trail had collapsed. I had to pick my way over the scree on all fours. Then the long climb went on all afternoon, up to about 3,000 metres, the temperature dropped like a stone with the sun, leaving the blessing of a warm bag and stars pulsing through the overhanging trees. My guts had started going bad that morning. That night they went completely. I just about made it out of the bag, sweating and heaving in the cold darkness. So the next day there was no going anywhere. It took until mid-morning 
before I could get up and totter a few hundred metres nearer to a lodge where we could get hot water. Sampa helped to glue things together a bit, but we just hung out for the day. Yaks and strange cows were grazing on the scraps of upland grass. Little brown bird, a dipper, squatted on one of the grey slabs that squeezed the icy stream, then flung itself into and through the churning torrent and out onto another rock. Next day we were on again. It got easier, little by little. First staggering on willpower amongst pink rhododendrons, bamboo and conifers, with everything dripping with moss, and the breath sobbing like an exhausted child's. Then, after Sampa, with no hope of getting anywhere, the valley opened, and we were in an alpine world, nearly treeless, with clear light and sparkling waters, and the hard climbing was over. The trail went on, azaleas, thorns, mountain grasses and small irises in their first spring bloom on the warmer north side of the valley, a few conifers on the south face. After Langtang village it was rock, smeared with rust and mustard-coloured lichens and whatever tiny plants can live in the scraps of soil that lodges amongst them. We were both quite spaced out by then. Nick lost his treasured binoculars and hardly seemed bothered about looking for them. But by the evening of April 20th, we still hadn't arrived at Kanjingompa. Fortunately, we were offered shelter in an outlying farmhouse. The yaks were underneath, the air like a razor. The interior was basically one large main room with a couple of wooden plank beds and a fire in one corner under a small hole in the roof. Fronds of juniper were hanging drying on the walls, dry yak dung in cakes by the smoky hearth. Old rugs and a blanket lay on the floor. Apart from the two of us, given the places by the walls, there were another three men. The mother was dead, and a young girl wandered in and out of the gloom a few times before spending the night somewhere else. Grandfather was coughing in a corner. He went on all night. Father was drunk, but harmless. And the son who had invited us off the trail was keeping things together. There wasn't a lot to keep together. One of his brothers had a small lodge farther up the trail. The other was a monk. The rest of the family got by on potatoes and yak by-products, supplemented by renting a room to a schoolteacher who'd come from the Tarai. It was mostly a matter of enduring and keeping some faith. The room filled up with smoke, but we had to keep the wooden slats that served as windows closed to preserve warmth. The old man was very sick, with one of those coughs that slowly wring a body out 
like the sound a car engine makes when the battery can barely turn it over. If compassion has a sound, this is it. What could I do but be there and feel it? Eventually I lay down and lifted the slat by my head a couple of fingers' breadths to breathe by, then wriggled down to peer into the night. A cold half-moon glared over the rock-strewn valley. The peaks, their flanks glowing with snow, were very close now, holding the black star-shot sky like a canopy over this fragile but tenacious life. Even sleep was fragile. There was none for the old man, and it could only sink me to the level where I could drift and let go into the smoke and the coughing. Morning puja was an offering of juniper to the fire, and with the flaring, an aromatic smoke was released to carry the mumbled string of prayers up through the hole in the roof. We left after some sampa. It was Nick's turn to crumble today, and so the going was very slow, through frozen snow that was just melting as we gradually climbed higher. Even at a snail's pace he had to keep stopping, which was fine by me, at this altitude too much activity brought chest pains, and by this time the idea of getting anywhere just made things worse. Every now and then there were mounds like walls in the middle of the track, walls that were up to 25 yards long, 5 feet high and 3 feet thick, made out of large tiles of rock, their broad, flat faces turned out towards passers-by. These walls will be made of three or more tiers of these tiles, with a something like a mortar of smaller rocks and shales in between each layer. The faces of the tiles were engraved in Tibetan script with mantras, symbols and prayers, and often a bamboo pole with ragged prayer flags on it stood nearby. Local people on the trail passed them, keeping them on their right side, sometimes adding a small rock to the heap on top as they moved their lips. When the mountain's jaws are this close, prayer seems a natural activity. I found myself falling into it. Why not? To be a pink bag of sensitive jelly, surrounded by such absolutes of severity, breeds awe, offering seems a natural response, with thoughts, sounds and rocks, the readily available forms of puja. So I would sit on the rocks with the glare closing my eyes, turning mantras in my mind, until Nick came shuffling up and sank down beside me. Then picture Kanjin Gompa set back from the main trail and above it, the trail led past the trekker's lodge and another building then came to an end. The white mountains closed in on all sides, dazzling. Beyond them, over the high ridge, was Tibet. There was no more going on. We'd arrived. But the gompa was locked. The nun in the nearby shelter pointed down at the lodge and said, Rinpoche! And when I turned my attention that way, 
I could hear the banging of drums interspersed with a cymbal clashing. So we sat there for a while, waiting for a thought. We'd passed backpackers on the lower stretches of the trail, mostly with a mumbled greeting. A couple of times when we sat at a lodge for tea, there were a few who were in the existential wandering mode, and they would come over for a brief chat. We met one Canadian guy, Neil, several times. On an indefinite world tour, he didn't know where he was going either. Well, he turned up at Kanjingompa, and an FWBO woman from London. The lodge below was a very worldly scene, and she was looking for a quiet place to meditate. But the lodge was the only thing that was happening, and Neil got things moving by inviting us down to Yeti Lodge for a meal. So there was a human world for the peaks to look down on. After the meal, behind the room for sleeping, eating and hanging out in, the commotion was still going on. So I nudged my way in. It was the kitchen. Rinpoche was sitting on a raised seat with a drum to one side of him that he could beat by pulling a string that connected to a stick. The cymbals were on the other. (laughs) With a great grin, he beckoned us in and indicated that I should sit by the drum. It was a dreadful racket. Obviously, some kind of blessing. The proprietor, kneeling in front of Rinpoche, spoke enough English, and in the first brief intermission when buttered tea came round by the pot, gave a brief explanation and relayed our request to Rinpoche to stay in the gompa. Now this had much immediate effect, so it was just a case of sitting it out. The trail ended there, as so many times, in the pit of frustration. After another hour of drumming, chanting and clashing, the next intermission produced the information that the gompa was always locked. My mind started falling apart. But the celebrations continued and my eardrums remained intact. Memories eventually fueled my resolve and there was nowhere else to go anyway. By the third hour or so, Things were starting to develop. A tray laden with carved spires of coloured yak butter was presented, and handfuls of rice grains thrown around, followed by a tray from which meat and butter were also sent to the four directions with a lot of crashing and drum rolls, while in the background it was business as usual, with the woman cooking food for the clientele in the other room some of whom had also crammed into the small kitchen to watch the show. Then the next level of offerings was reached. The owner stood up with a knife with a big wadge of butter on its tip, called out a phrase and raised the knife towards the rafters. Then another man did the same with a tray laid with lumps of meat and butter. Rice grains came round again to be received with heavy percussion and again strewn in all directions. Everyone seemed to be having fun, so I joined in by hurling rice around. It was obviously the right thing to do, because among much satisfied grinning and smiles, Rinpoche came to a halt and began packing up his gear to make a departure. But what about a place to stay? Nick, 
pragmatic as usual, was piping up before I could stop him, using the Tibetan word for bhikkhu. My companion is a monk, a gelong. He can't stay here. Not right. Gelong sleep with women. We are pilgrims. Come to meditate. We all bundled out of the butter-strewn kitchen with Rinpoche striding up the hill at quite a pace, but he turned his head back towards us with a slight tilt and a big grin. So Nick and I galloped after him as best we could at 5,000 metres altitude. Rinpoche's room in the shelter beside the gompa was like the cockpit of an airplane with photographs, malas and religious images instead of dials and gauges. He had a book of photographs too, with pictures of the Dalai Lama escaping from Tibet across the mountains with some companions. Dalai Lama was the only phrase we had in common. Somehow, through pointing at himself and the mountains and the photographs, we concluded to our own satisfaction that he too had made his way over the ridges after the Chinese invasion. But the gompa was still locked. Waggling his hand around in front of the keyhole and pointing down the valley with the word Lama seemed to indicate that the keys were held by a more senior monk in Langtang or beyond. But there was the covered porch which was enclosed and used as a store for wood and yak dung. That'll do. Rinpoche set to vigorously sweeping the floor and then bringing armfuls of quilts and blankets over from his shelter, finally returning with an oil lamp made out of an old ink bottle and a giant flask of buttered tea. It was late Sunday afternoon. The slow rate of walking meant that we'd have to leave on Wednesday. The week's retreat had been nibbled down to three nights. But we'd found our quiet place in the mountains at last. Of course, good old Nick had to invite the FWBO woman to join us for meditation. But we sat in silence for an hour or so. And after she'd gone, I went outside to continue meditating into the night. It was the half-moon vigil. And I sat with a sleeping bag and blankets wrapped around me. At midnight... The mountains swallowed the moon. In the night and the early mornings, the peaks seemed subtly alive, softly shaped by moon shadow, or turning luscious tints of pale guava and orange before the sun turned them hard white. There was my meditation, facing south from the gompa, feeling that it was still possible to attune to that stillness, be brought alive by it, the mind willing and in love with attention left everything else alone, snuggled right up to it. Only the eyes would sometimes have a flirtatious peak at the dawn and poised in the silence of its own awareness. Is that the silence of the mountains? Have you heard that sound of silence, like the sound of starlight falling on snow? And then felt that slight teetering as something wants to know or to grasp. Isn't that what it's like when you feel you're getting close? But the peaks never take you when you want them to. 
and then it seems like they're slipping away. It's like this. I'd even made it very clear to Nick the way it was going to be the next morning. If you go down to the lodge and anyone is interested and wants to see me, don't bring them up here. Arrange a time and I'll come down to see them. <laughs> that was the last desperate attempt to get hold of the silence and gulp it down. Then came the sinking feeling as an Australian voice slid through the wooden lattice of our retreat. Hey, you guys meditating? Can I come and sit with you? It wasn't that I was going to bite off a big chunk of silence. No, the pilgrim's way is about getting turned around and getting swallowed. I made an attempt to fend him off. We'll be having a puja each evening. You'll be welcome to join us then. Gee, that's great, and I'll join you now if that's all right. And then the nice FWBO woman came back, and the Australian brought his friend, and Neil turned up. And we talked on Dharma and meditation for a couple of hours. And then he brought food for us to eat, even some lovely cheese brought by the FWBO lady, with an air of slight embarrassment from the other building in the valley, which turned out to be a cheese factory. And that's the way it was. I could be on my own before the morning puja and after the evening with the wonderful mountains. And in between those times there'll be talk on Dhamma and people bringing food and the Rinpoche happily trotting over with an enormous flask of tea twice a day. A Tibetan businessman even turned up and invited us down to his shop for a blessing. It was all very joyful. <laughs> Just the way it was. So I found myself becoming the acting abbot of a small vihara. Basically the same role I'd been in when I left Britain. But now I could be the silence within that. Yes, there was a lot more being chewed to go through yet. But that was all right. There was a ragged old man who lived in the mountains. Three times a day he'd come round with his prayer wheel going and circumambulate the gompa intoning Om Mane Padme Om or generally Om Mane Padme because his breath would give out. Every morning and every evening we'd be standing or sitting with him slowly making his way around us reciting his mantra. One evening he brought us warm potatoes in an old can, so we gave him tea. At first, he couldn't believe that the entire mug was for him. Then, as it dawned on him, he, holding the mug like it was the Holy Grail, slowly drank it down as one long draught. And then he came out with his mantra, complete and joyous as a trumpet fanfare. Oh, money, put me home! Oh, money, put me home! And it dawned on me, slowly, and with a growing sense of being turned inside out, that we were being circumambulated, that the old man and the huge human pilgrimage and all its rags and tatters was turning around and blessing us. So what can you do to follow that? On the last evening I tracked him down to his dwelling, it was just a nook underneath a fallen boulder with a woven rattan wall to keep the wind out. 
and I crawled in with a mala and a mantra. There, in the smoke from the juniper fire that warmed and tarred everything under that rock, we sat and chanted, Om Mane Padme Hum, for a long while. Homage to the jewel in the lotus. Praise to the mystery at wisdom's heart and to everything it brings forth. Or just homage. Nothing else makes sense when you're in the mountains. Wednesday, April 24th. With Neil in tow, we started making our way down, thinking again we knew where we were going. By mid-morning, we'd reached the farmhouse again, on an impulse stopped by. The sun was more subdued. Grandfather had just died. Crossed over to the next valley. Life. Hard and long when it's working you over, then sweet and so short, like the flash of light on a breaking wave. So much what we are that we can barely see it, then so utterly gone. And where are we going? Look, it's like this. I did some chanting. Nick knew the last few lines and joined in. The sun stood listening. Then it stopped. We stood together in the morning sun for a while and the silence was there among us. Then we said goodbye and went on down the track. And that's the way it is. Nick Scott We had left early. Ours were the first footsteps in the snow that had appeared overnight. Snow covered the tops of the rocks, but not the sides, and the contrast everywhere of brilliant white horizontals and lichen grey verticals was magical. Neil thought it made a great backdrop for a photograph, so we stopped briefly and posed for him beside a pile of snow-dusted prayer stones with the white peaks of the Himalayas behind. It was pleasant walking. We were well rested. It was downhill, and we had given ourselves, for once, more time than we needed more than three days to do two days walking. We walked along, chatting to Neil, making our way through the valley. We passed the Tibetan villages and the people working in the fields, stopping just before the open valley came to an end at a Tibetan lodge, where Neil bought us a meal. After that, the path dropped steeply through forest, and as we made our way down, we had time to stop and admire the rhododendrons coming into bloom the cascading water of the streams crossing our path, and the soft green light cast by the forest canopy. We had decided to sleep outside that night, somewhere in the forest, and by late afternoon we'd reached a break in the steep descent I had spotted on the map. Neil's sleeping bag wasn't up to a night outside, so we agreed to meet him in two days' time to catch the bus together to Kathmandu. Clouds had begun to build up again that afternoon, 
and although rain and snow were unusual in that season, it seemed best to seek some shelter. I found a cave further up the valley side, formed by two massive boulders propped against each other. It was some thirty feet deep, much of it high enough for us to walk around in, and there were several flat terraces to sleep on. As I climbed back down for Ajahn Suchito and our packs, I felt a few raindrops, and by the time we had climbed up again, it was raining properly. I lit a fire inside to boil water, and then we sat in the entrance sipping tea and looking out at the rain, now falling heavily, bouncing off the leaves and ground, and running in rivulets down the hillside. Inside, dry and warm, it felt like our fortunes had turned. Instead of the frustrations and hardships of the last six months, things were now going our way. By morning, we'd grown fond of our cave and decided to stay on a few hours. How we used that free time reflected the difference between the two of us that seems to me the most relevant to this story. Not that between the ox and the dragon, or the monk and the scientist, but between the ascetic and the sensualist. Just two more labels no more true than any others, but still labels that are pointing to something. When these two characters walk the spiritual path, they do it in such apparently different ways. Ajahn Suchito opted to spend this time sitting in meditation in the cave, while I, of course, climbed up and sat atop one of the two boulders. This was so large that its front jutted out from the forest canopy that clothed the mountainside, and from it I had a view of the whole valley. Everywhere were trees, most of them conifers, and the recent rain had left them all glistening in the morning sun. Tiny droplets of water hung from the pine needles beside me, and I sat in silence, delighting in it all. My mind had emptied, leaving a sense of vastness and awe, and no sense of boundary between me and the world about me. It felt very profound, and I sat like that for two hours or more, drinking from that spiritual well that I'd been a long time in refinding until Ajahn Suchito called and I had to clamber down to pack up our things and set off down the valley. That afternoon, as we carried on through the forest, my mind again went quiet, leaving only the sense of walking and the feeling of being at one with what we were passing through. The beauty of the nature all around, the shafts of sunlight on the path ahead, the feeling of my feet hitting the ground, and no perception of anyone at all doing it. During that long, magical afternoon, there also came the realisation, bubbling up from somewhere, that it was experiences such as these that I had been missing for most of the last six months. That is why it now felt so like a thirst-quenching draught. The relentless impingement of India and the difficulty and frustration of what we had taken on had driven away any experience of the sublime. It felt like the experiences of stillness and oneness when they first came for me with the practice of meditation. Then the contrast between the mind tense with trying, then finally letting go 
and relaxing into the quietness also enhance the sense of depth and profundity. For me, that first happened after a year or so of meditation courses. I had been sitting under a tree sipping herb tea in a break in a meditation course in Somerset. I was looking at nothing in particular when everything took on this shimmering sense of suchness. Something I had experienced before on LSD, a oneness and a timelessness to each moment. Of course, once it had passed, I wanted it back, and that was to be the way for years afterwards. At the end of some meditation sessions, perhaps for the last 10 or 15 minutes of three hours, the same experience would happen. And then, after the gong, I would wander off into the garden to be delighted by the beauty of the flowers or the trees. And, of course, the next time I sat, I would be trying to work out how to make it happen again. Last time I just dropped the shoulder slightly, like this. Spending the whole meditation course caught up in seeking it, and suffering if it didn't come. No one spoke of experiences like that in the Goenka tradition. We were supposed to be diligently watching our sensations, not playing games with emptiness. So eventually I went off to a Zen monastery, and then sat on a course taught by Ajahn Sumedho. He put it all into perspective, telling me not to make much of what was happening, not to indulge such experiences, but instead to use the awareness to inquire into my own true nature. I did try, but really, being a true sensualist, I was still delighting in it. With time that experience became more familiar, and so less profound, more ordinary, something that came and went in my daily meditation. It would also happen at times when I was relaxed and amongst nature, especially when walking. So I had come to think I was not seeking it anymore. That was until the pilgrimage and the nearly complete absence of tranquillity and any sense of oneness. I spent much of the pilgrimage with a slight sense of dis-ease, because deep down I wanted those states of mind, and it was only now, as I came down from the mountains, that I could see that. It had taken me ten years to finally see what Ajahn Sumedho had been warning me against, and I saw that the focus of practice now had to be understanding and resolving my conditioning, it was the conditioning that was the problem. The transcendent could take care of itself. That realisation was very powerful, but it came, was acknowledged, and passed just as the other perceptions of the afternoon did. The beauty of a waterfall we crossed beneath, or the deep blue of the sky between the high wooded valley sides. From the perspective of centredness, there was no regret, and no need to dwell on it. That was just the way it was. The whole walk down from the Gompa was quite magical. There was a sense of release. We had done it, and there was nothing left to do. We had time on our hands, and we could wander down through the mountains, enjoying the scenery. The forest was incredibly beautiful. The mixture of conifers, with a few old oak trees, 
all of them dripping with long strands of lichen, at the top of the valley, gave way slowly to deciduous trees, with the light through their leaves dappling the path ahead. The last four days seemed to have brought the flowers out, the delicate white flowers of mountain strawberries, big tufts of yellow-green spurge, blue iris by the water, or maybe it was just that I was now more attentive. We slept out another two nights and ate another meal at a Tibetan lodge. We wandered along with that sense of ease and well-being that going downhill or cycling with a strong wind at your back brings. Nothing was a problem. Not that one of Ajahn Suchito's sandals giving out would have been a problem to him anyway. On the first day, there was the flapping noise that had previously always come from mine. He took no notice. On the second, the whole front of the sandal broke off, and he had to walk on with his socked foot protruding. He did point it out, but it was plainly of little consequence to him. What was different was that it didn't matter to me either. And on the way down we chatted occasionally, in that relaxed way one does when something is over. I remember particularly a stop we made by the river. Ajahn Suchito suggested we do an hour's meditation. So we set up a small shrine of rocks with our wonky Mahakanti Buddha on it and then sat together beside the river. The river was a wide torrent of white water tumbling down the valley over great boulders. Spectacular to look at. But when I closed my eyes, I was left with a loud and incessant roar. When the hour was up, I commented to Ajahn Suchito that we might as well have been sitting inside a jumbo jet as it would have sounded the same with our eyes closed. He was surprised and asked if I did not use the sound as my meditation object. In fact, I had. There was no other choice. But that has simply meant that I sat for an hour listening to a loud roaring noise. He was again surprised, commenting that if he did that, the sound disappeared within minutes. We then got into a discussion about our meditation experiences. For Ajahn Suchito, absorption into higher levels of concentration was easy. But it was that same experience of oneness that I described earlier, which was of real import. His tendency was towards absorption or into abstraction, while mine was to get distracted by sensual delight in the world. Both tendencies took us away. But I realised then that Ajahn Suchito's was a better one to have if you were going to walk through India. And that, I think, was the only time we talked of our own meditation experience on the whole pilgrimage. But then what was the point when our tendencies were so different? And so we descended. Going down further, the heat returned and the forest became subtropical. Then it was small fields of cultivated terraces and Saibru village. We stopped there for a big plate of noodles as our meal, the cheapest thing on the menu. In the afternoon we wandered on, down through steep, tree-covered slopes, where we stopped and camped the last night. The final descent was through dense, deciduous forest, around a high rock bluff covered in gnarled rhododendrons, to arrive at Dunchi 
the morning of the fourth day. Dunchi hadn't seen much when we got there from Kathmandu, just a one-horse town with a row of wooden hotels. But now, after a week in the mountains, it seemed the height of sophistication. Each of the hotels had a veranda facing onto the main street, with white plastic tables under umbrellas, where Western travellers sat in groups, chatting over coffee or eating scrumptious-looking breakfasts. We, however, had to make do with a small tea store. I left Ajahn Suchito drinking a tea, all I could afford, while I went to buy the bus tickets, glancing enviously at the other Westerners enjoying their meals as I walked down the street to the small hut with a sign announcing the bus to Kathmandu. Inside the hut an old Nepali man sat on a stool against a shelf with a pile of bus tickets and a money box. When I asked for two tickets to Kathmandu, he looked up and to my surprise said, One man paid for English Gelong? With you, yes. Bemused, I answered yes, and he handed over the ticket waiting beside the money box. It must have been Neil, who having got there earlier than expected, had gone on to Kathmandu and left a ticket for Ajahn Suchita. It was a lovely gesture, and to celebrate it, we spent the money on a proper English-style breakfast. We sat on one of those verandas, enjoying scrambled eggs, toast, butter, marmalade and tea. Two pots for Ajahn Suchita. Then the bus journey. I spent the first part sitting amongst the luggage on the roof, from where I had a spectacular view down the valley and up to the distant white mountain tops as the bus wound its way down the dirt road that switched back and forth across the steep hillsides. These lower inner valleys had been cleared completely of forest, the hillsides terraced with long green paddy fields winding round them. The bus stopped at each small hamlet to let more Nepalese on, and soon the inside was full, and they began to join me on the roof. By late morning, when the bus eventually came down to the valley bottom, there were more than thirty of us up there, wedged between bits of luggage and hanging on as the bus swayed along. At Trasuli Bazaar, most of the locals got off to do their weekly shopping, and I took the opportunity to take a seat inside. I wanted to be back next to my companion, even if it was squashed and unpleasant inside with no fabulous view. I'd had this wave of affection for him when sitting on the roof, and I wanted to do the last part of the journey beside him. He was my Kalyanamita, my spiritual friend. And I don't think the scholars are right when they argue, as Ajahn Suchito explained after Kushinagar, way back at the beginning of the pilgrimage, that when the Buddha said that Kalyanamita were all of the spiritual life, it was just a play on words. I think the Buddha meant exactly that. After all, where would we be without them? How would we ever get started? How would we keep it up for a lifetime if they were not well-knowing spiritual friends doing it with us? We don't choose them, like other friends. We just get given them, and they can be so different from ourselves sometimes exasperatingly so, 
like Ajahn Sajita. As it was, the pilgrimage turned out to be the most important single thing I've done in my spiritual life, and I suspect it was like that for him too. Maybe the importance of spiritual friends is more obvious to those of us inclined to the sensual. Ascetics seem to think they can do it on their own, perhaps because their sense of despair makes them think they have to. But a sensualist knows he can't. He knows that if it were left to him, he would be sitting on a hillside eating ice cream and enjoying the view. It feels like something that is somehow done to him. Despite that, something that has to involve other people. So that is why the pilgrimage and this book turned out to be about two people struggling to do something together, rather than about what we actually achieved. And why, to this day, there is no one for whom I have such affection for as the man who was sitting beside me on that bus. The bus filled with other passengers and then left town on the tarmac road that climbed up and over the pass to the Kathmandu Valley. Two hours later, we were in Kathmandu on our way to Sangaram to pick up our things. From there, we took a trolley bus to Venerable Nanapurnika's temple in the new part of town beside the dual carriageway to the airport. Next day was our last in Nepal. I spent the morning in town returning equipment we'd hired or loaned. I also made one last visit to the general post office, seeking the parcel of clothes bought in New Delhi, to be told that it had been sent back to sender. The parcel clerk, now back at work, also told me that it was here for more than allowed three months, and that he'd actually returned it just the other day. So much for all the things I was to take back to England. I had to let them go, after all, and when I finally did, it was a relief. I even felt a wave of joy for whichever Nepalis got them. I should have given them away at the beginning, as my companion surely would have done but it can be so hard for me to let go of the physical realm. At least his apparent disdain for the world and interest instead in abstraction and absorption come from a seeing clearly that wanting things from the world leads to disappointment. I was still deluded that somehow I could, if I adjusted this and changed that, get it worked out and be finally satisfied. But really, both tendencies are wrong. Neither indulging in the world nor dismissing it are the answer. Where are you going? It is not where so much as how. We have to find the Buddha's middle way, somewhere halfway between the two, where pleasures can be enjoyed and difficulties accepted, with neither desire or aversion. Back in Kathmandu that afternoon, Ajahn Suchito gave one last talk at Venerable Nyanapunika's other temple in the old part of Patan. Then, Venerable Nyanapunika insisted on paying for a taxi to the airport, and in no time we were on the evening flight to New Delhi. It took off in the dark with the moon up so that the shapes of the high mountains were just discernible 
as we banked and turned to head south. In no time the plane had passed over the Mahabharat Lek and the other foothills we had climbed through and we were flying high over the Ganges plain. The ground dotted with a million faint lights, like a night sky seen through a powerful telescope. Here and there the multitude of pinpricks coalesced into constellations, which were the towns, or strange swirling galaxies, which were cities. But it was the sheer density of the little lights in the darker areas that was the most impressive. They represented the hundreds of millions of people who lived on the plain, all those people of whom we had seen a small fraction. I was deeply moved by that last sight of the plain we'd struggled across for all those months. I felt immensely fond of it, and all the people who lived there, as I looked down from above. Then we were descending towards New Delhi Airport. The night of the flight was Wampra, the night of our usual full moon meditation vigil, and we found ourselves parked in the transit lounge of New Delhi Airport for the night. It being India, the lounge was crowded with other passengers, most of them crumpled in heaps on the benches or strewn on the floors, trying to get some sleep. From around the lounge, several young children took it in turns to cry. All these people and the lack of ventilation made it hot and stuffy. I had tried to find a way out so that we could spend the night on a roof, but each of the exits was guarded by airport personnel, who insisted that we were only to be allowed out when our flight was due to leave. So we were stuck there till dawn. We were also both extremely tired from the previous day's travelling. I assumed under the circumstances Arjun Suchita would skip this full moon sitting, but I should have known better. Despite us being so tired and the terrible situation, he was going to fulfil our original determination. While I'd been looking for a way out, he'd found a small bit of floor space between a partition and a bench with an Indian family encamped on it, and there he'd set up our small shrine and a place for the two of us to sit. When I returned, he was settling himself down to sit up for the night. I no longer had it in me even to try. I just lay down and fell straight asleep beside him. And I don't think he even noticed. He was so tired himself that his head was already slowly slumping forward, then being jerked back as I closed my eyes. The Air India Jumbo Jet took off just before dawn. I'd realised even before our pilgrimage started that the timing of this flight and the fact we were flying west and so following the sun would mean that the whole 12-hour flight would be technically during the period from dawn until midday when Buddhist monks and their lay companions on eight precepts could eat. That thought had often sustained me during the periods of real deprivation we went through on the pilgrimage. I would think of all the difficulties being over and sitting on the flight home eating all those lovely airline meals. So here we finally were, and sitting in the two seats by the central exit, opposite the galley from where the trolley loads of dinners would emerge. With the breakfast I managed to restrain myself, 
and only asked for two extra portions of bread, marmalade and tea. During the second meal, however, the effect of the fantasies and all those months of going without took hold. When I finished my foil-packaged meal on its plastic tray, I could not help but notice that other people were sending back parts of theirs untouched. The trolley would park right in front of me. So I asked if I could have some of the rejected portions of the main course. Then I started taking some of the sweets and salads left over. Eventually the air hostess offered me a whole extra meal. Even after that I was still raiding the returning trolley for the small packets of cheese and biscuits and asking for more fruit juice. Arjun Suchito said the poor Indian stewardess looked like a small frightened bird with a large and insatiable cuckoo chick in its nest. I only realised that I was never going to be satisfied, no matter how much I ate, when the trolley disappeared for the last time. By then the plane had started its slow descent to Heathrow, and I put the thought of food aside to look out of the window as we crossed the English Channel and the long curving line of the Kent coast. It was a clear day, and we could see the green fields and small towns of south-east England way below us. Then the plane was turning over London in the queue of planes waiting to land, and, as at the beginning of the pilgrimage, the fake detachment of soaring above it all gave us one last chance to contemplate what it was that we were returning to. England, home, monasteries... Family. Well, I tried. But I was now feeling too nauseous from all the food I'd eaten. As we wheeled slowly down, banking at each turn so the streets of London appeared laid out below us in the window, each of the turns made me feel even more queasy. Then, when with a thud of wheels we were finally down, and there was that slow turning and then the clank of the stairs connecting to the hull. I felt so stuffed that it was painful just walking down the steps and through the airport. I didn't ever want to see food again. In England, however, it was still morning. Even after the long flight, the landing, and the time taken to pass the cold stairs of custom officers and immigration, because of the turning of the planet, we came out into the arrivals lounge with one hour still to go before midday. And there waiting for us was quite a group from the monastery, monks, nuns and anacarakas, with dishes of food and special treats like English chocolates, in case we hadn't eaten enough on the flight. Arjun Suchita was visibly moved by the sight of so many of his fellow salmoners there to meet him, and he graciously accepted some of their offerings. For me, though, just the sight of more food was too much. I sat down next to him, surrounded by all these welcoming faces and their kind gesture, and felt sick. And there was that sensation so familiar from the pilgrimage, that sinking feeling of having blown it again. I was well and truly down from the mountains, and from that other transcendent reality. Back in samsara, the cycle of birth and death, the cycle fueled by my greed, hatred and delusion, 
Had anything really changed? The pilgrimage was over. We were back where we began, and I just felt humbled by the difficulty of it all and how poorly I'd managed. But something somewhere had changed. Maybe it wasn't at the front of my mind then, but somewhere there was now the knowing that it is here that I have to work it all out. For it is here that Nirvana is, not some other place that I had striven for. I just had to work at the illusion. Sam Ford read the introductions to each chapter. Micah Deer assembled the audio content from our home recordings. And Podrick Cotter set up and managed this podcast. Sardu, a much gratitude to them. The reading of another Tudong or pilgrimage book may follow, but only after a good break.